much hair left on his head. He ate a slice of Wonder Bread and went right back to bed. Oh, he couldn't bring the columns down. We couldn't destroy a single one. In history books, forgot about us, and the Bible didn't mention us. Not even one. afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. Our guest today is author Jonathan Lethem. Jonathan is the author of eight novels, a novella, numerous collections of fiction and nonfiction, as well as a volume of essays that explore the relationship between so-called high art and pop culture. His writings have appeared in numerous periodicals, including The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, and McSweeney's. And in September of 2005, he was named as one of the 2005 recipients of the MacArthur Fellowship, uh, a grant that's often fondly and enviously referred to as a genius grant. <laughs> it's a title that uh, you should be very proud of. Uh, it thank means, you so it means they were geniuses for giving it. To <laughs> I imagine so. But uh, thank you so much for joining thanks, us on the show today. You're just uh, releasing your newest book. Uh, you don't you don't love me yet, right? Um, kind of passive aggressive title. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. Um, it, it grabbed me as soon as I saw it. Frankly, um, I was hoping we could get started by having you read um, a little bit from sure. the beginning of that book, yeah. just so we can give our listeners a little idea of what exactly the book is about. Here goes. They met at the museum to end it. There, wandering through high, barren rooms full of conceptual art, alone on a Thursday afternoon, Lucinda Hoke and Matthew Plangent felt certain they wouldn't be tempted to do more than talk. Two, driving into the canyon of vacated plazas of downtown Los Angeles, felt suitably solemn and irrevocable. The plan was not to sever as friends or bandmates, only as lovers. Lucinda saw him first, a tall, malnourished vegetarian, Matthew was obliviously handsome, lead singer handsome. He was dressed as for his work at the zoo and for the band's practices, in black turtleneck, jeans, and speckless suede work boots, which Lucinda knew he kept in his locker when he entered the animal's habitats. Matthew had presumably been excused from his veterinary nursing duties for the afternoon, or possibly it was his day off. For the past four years, Lucinda had been assembling espresso drinks, and clearing dishes at the coffee chairs. But she'd quit her job the day before, 
part of the same program of change that included this final rupture with Matthew. Instead, to pay her rent, Lucinda had agreed to work for her friend, Falmouth Strand, in his storefront gallery. On her way into the museum, Lucinda had paused at two heroic pillars of neon, mounted on either side of a doorway, and seen only versions of herself and Matthew, discreet, sealed, radiant. Now, sighting Matthew, she felt her senses quicken, her balance shifting to her toes. He squinted warily at a television monitor on a white pediment, some sort of video art. Perhaps it was the case that for him, as for her, everything in the museum had been reduced to an allegory of their dilemma. Exhausted by the old tug of his beauty, his scruffy intensity and lean limbs, Lucinda was ready to send Matthew and his lure out voyaging elsewhere. She joined silently silently to his side, the tiny hairs of their arms bristling together electrically. The two wandered like zombies through the exhibition, hesitating for a long while at a pair of basketballs floating perfectly suspended at midpoint in a glass water tank. The thing is, we've done this so much before, we're too good at it. Matthew's gaze remained fixed on the tank. You mean there's nothing to say? Yes, she said, but also we don't believe it's real because we've fallen back together so many times afterwards. We need to make a difference between this time and all those others. This time we're serious, Lucinda. Thank you. That was author Jonathan Lethem reading from his latest novel titled You Don't Love Me Yet. Um, that Now that passage uh, sort of introduces the reader to the main characters in the book. You've got... Um, these sort of disenchanted, you know, 20-something musicians living in L.A. Uh, Lucinda's, I guess you could say, the novel's protagonist, although she has a small troop of uh, supporting characters surrounding yeah. her at all times. Um, tell us tell us a little bit about where this idea came from. Well, of course, it strongly relates to my own late 20s, you know, angst. I was living not in Los Angeles, but in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and... Uh, you know, there's something very, in retrospect, very poignant and and um, pathetic, but also really charming about that kind of panic, the onset of the panic that, that came as we drifted towards the end of our 20s and this feeling of, uh, you know, um, of, of, of a ticking clock began to come over us that people had to either, you know, um, become serious at what they were doing, you know, stop just posturing and uh, promising themselves and other people that they were about to become artists or rock stars or, or, or whatever it was, or, or else, you know, run screaming back to graduate school or mm-hmm. somehow, uh, you know, all the disguises were falling away and it was time to, um, to call one's own bluff. And, uh, and yet the habit of drifting was still so strong and the disparity, I think what, what, strikes me so much about these characters and and what I remember so uh, in such a bittersweet way for myself was the enormous gulf between how we pictured ourselves and what we were actually spending our time doing. Mm-hmm. You know, people have called this a, a rock novel, and I understand calling it that, but in a way it's really a day job novel. It's sort of about the, the pathetic things these characters are forced to actually do with their 
time while they go on fantasizing that they're about to become rock stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering how much of how much of the, the novel came out of your own experiences. Tell me about the cover. The yeah, cover the cover. The it's a kind of exercise in personal humiliation. I, <laughs> it's a it's a photograph of me at twenty five. I thought um, I thought that was you. <laughs> yeah, s- seated on a futon, dressed very preciously, um, with a guitar near at hand, mm-hmm. but. But I'm not playing the guitar. It's sort of like um, I'm afraid of the guitar. Maybe it's mm-hmm. it's a it it catch, captures me at a moment of maximum uh, pretense. And I guess in a way, I had this picture and I showed it to my editor. You know, it, it it's a way of confessing that you know um, there's uh, that I don't I don't mean to satirize these characters that I that I adore them and that I relate to them and that no one's being uh, mocked any any more than I than I would you know mock myself mm-hmm. for having been young and uh, in that kind of tenuous posturing phase mm-hmm. can you actually play the guitar no that's the whole thing it's <laughs> it's you know it really is a pose that should have been re- reserved for the for the bathroom mirror yeah uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean I think that's what's so funny about it is I was never able to make good on that that photograph it's just a it, it's a, like a glimpse of an alt alternate history me mm-hmm. you had a good friend um when we were looking at the cover of your book ask me to ask you why 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 would he put his picture on the cover mm-hmm. of the book but um after you explain it that way um at first it didn't seem to make a lot of sense but that sort of um ennui that surrounds yeah. all the characters yeah, in the it's, novel it's a confession yeah yeah that makes a lot that makes a lot of sense um i'm curious so you're talking about how you're your experiences, you know, uh, as a 20-something writer who's trying to get into the arts affected how you wrote this novel, were you intending the audience of this novel to be um, people who were around you at that time in your life, your generation, or perhaps for a younger generation who's now encountering the same type of problem? Well, boy, it's I, I don't know, both. I mean, I, I don't really think in terms of... Um, an exclusive audience when I'm writing a book. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd hope that this book captures enough of that um, kind of dizzy, innocent feeling that it would, it would, um, it would be rich for for anyone to read. But yeah, I, I like the idea that the, you know, um, a younger audience could relate to it. Um, it's a funny thing the, the the way you can go on identifying so strongly with, you know. Uh, people 10, 15, 20 years younger than yourself. You know, I mean, the opposite never happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 20-somethings don't look around them at the the people in their mid-40s and sort of feel these pangs of identification. <laughs> but 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 somehow you're allowed to, to go on, you know, um, believing in yourself as a kind of work in progress long after the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. die is cast, I guess. Yeah, I guess that trend... I mean, I feel like it definitely does continue... Um, in you know, in the other direction, in yeah. the sense that these young generations, you know, the styles will change and the influences will change, but there's, there's always going to be that group of you know young, long longing filled artists. Yeah. Who are, um, who well, are I tried to for. keep it sort of archetypal in that way. It's I mean, the book is kind of vaguely set in the early '90s, but you, there's nothing in it that is so culturally specific that you couldn't transplant it ten years in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. It's it's, um, you know, part it's partly the the nature of, the condition of being. A, a a young bohemian that you're you know these characters aren't like reading the daily paper or furrowing their brows and thinking hard about the issues of the day they sort of exist in this weird bubble of ego and and 
and uh, and and depression, but they don't have um, that that their condition is a pretty eternal one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering. <laughs> I mean, it seems like because of the uh, early '90s, especially music references that are sort of littered around the book. I'm wondering if maybe those you know, those bands and stuff aren't even more hip now than they were in the early 90s, specifically because they're from the early 90s. But um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the concept of autobiography and how that filters into your work. Sure. Um, you know, reading reading your work, you can you can definitely get a clear sense of the parts of your life that filter filter into your work. But I felt like this was a very different sort of uh biographical reference to your life than, say, Motherless Brooklyn. Yeah, that's true. I mean, those two Brooklyn novels are so suffused in memory material, in, in, in the texture, you know, in the kind of sepia tone of my recollections of Brooklyn in the 70s and, and 80s, and that gives them a very particular flavor, which it kind of exaggerates, actually, in a way that the autobiographical... Uh, feeling because I mean, for instance, if you take Motherless Brooklyn, I was—I don't have Tourette syndrome. I was never a orphan or a, a fake detective. I mean, it's—it's it's really quite a fantasy that book. But the feeling, the emotion that 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 kind of uh, floods through the pages is very personal, and everyone can feel that. And and so when they when they think of that as an autobiographical book, I don't think anyone's wrong to feel that. This is true. It's very. Uh, indirect by comparison, but that's partly because it's not a nostalgic book. I don't rhapsodize over a time and place. I'm uh, thinking about very personal and very intimate emotional experiences, and these characters are very personal to me. But there's nothing that would make you feel that I was uh, kind of, you know, sitting in my memory palace gazing at the treasures <laughs> in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, the personal element in a book like this is actually quite disguised or or it, it doesn't draw attention to itself in the same way mm-hmm. it seems uh, looking at the body of your work you know over the past decade or so that the majority of your work has been fiction and I'm curious as to how you deal with nonfiction in your fiction where do you draw the line you know are there parts of your life or other people's lives that you will never stick into your fiction or is everything fair game does that make it more authentic well I mean to take the first part of the question, well, the last part of the question. First, I should say, I do kind of think that everything ultimately is fair game. I don't really um, have a uh, a quarantine on any materials, and I've found ways to make that okay. You know, either by transforming them before they, you know, hit the page, uh, so that only I know exactly how <laughs> uh, particular and and revealing they they are, or by you know actually negotiating. Uh, an understanding with people who I want to write about. You know, Fortress of Solitude is a novel, but it's also partly a kind of collective oral history of the neighborhood I grew up in. And there are stories and and impressions besides my own in there. You know, mm-hmm. things people told me and shared with me as I was uh, plunging into this set of uh, recollections about public school in Brooklyn in the 1970s that uh, belonged to other people, not to me. But then again, I'm fundamentally a fiction writer, and everything tends to get transformed, uh, not as some act of avoidance or, or protection, but because my imagination tends to want to 
transmute the materials and tends to want to apply metaphor uh, to fact. And, and so things come out strange and things come out different uh, just by the nature of my creative process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was very slow to write any nonfiction at all. I, I wrote several novels and uh, loads of short stories before I ever really tried even writing the most kind of rudimentary uh, book reviews or, or, you know, even cursory essays, let alone the, the, the more ambitious and, and you know, I think, interesting essays that I collected in that one book of, of, uh, of, of personal essays called The Disappointment Artist. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, you know, when I write a nonfiction piece, it's a real exception for me. It still feels like I'm stepping out of my normal mode of operation. And the truth is, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not some, some big charlatan who's, who's invented mm-hmm. a lot of fake facts from my past. But on the other hand, those are very creative essays. They wouldn't pass some sort of, you know, journalistic... Um, uh, test. I, I tend to be, uh, you know, uh, thinking as a fiction writer, even when I'm writing something that is uh, presenting itself as, you know, a first person essay about the life of Jonathan Lethem. In a way, I'm writing a short story about that. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the more um, obvious defining characteristics of your work is that it does tend to sort of cross the inter-literary genre boundary. But um, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, after our break. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai, and I'm here with author Jonathan Lethem discussing his latest work, "You Don't Love Me Yet." Um, before the break, we were talking. We we're talking a little bit about uh, genre. We were talking about how you consider yourself primarily a fiction writer, and I'm wondering: is that out of is that out of preference, or is it out of necessity, um, or is it something that you just feel like you have the skills to master more than other other genres. Well, it's absolutely what I just most want to do is you know what I love most are novels and stories, and so I've always uh, you know wanted to be that kind of writer. But I also I think it's worth saying that you know I grew up um, in the household of a painter. My dad was a was a visual artist and still is, and I did that for a long time. I painted and 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 made sculpture and and also did like comic books cartooning and went to art school and studied it for quite a while and that's really the backdrop to my becoming a writer whereas so many people i think 
uh, do a lot of other kinds of writing first. They're either journalists or they are in graduate school and maybe they've written a lot of essays or a thesis or dissertation. I did very little other kinds of writing. I mean, when I launched my first effort to you know write a novel, I I was thinking of it as you know a piece of artwork. It was it was like making a painting. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I was never a good student. I did very little essay writing, and mm-hmm. I've never been a journalist. Uh, so for me, it was always sort of this notion of uh, creating a, a an artifact, something out of your imagination, something that would be. Um, Fun or beautiful or or you know peculiar, but to, to regard. But but I I don't think of writing mainly as a kind of um, uh, for me as a nonfiction form that I've I've bent to this other purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of making novels and stories sort of like the way I was trained to think of making you know paintings or sculptures. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've written quite a few short stories. I read I was reading another interview that. Uh, you participated in and you had a, a quote I thought was really fabulous. You said, there's always something wrong with even the greatest of novels. And often there are hundreds of things wrong with even very wonderful novels because they're just too varied and inclusive to ever be perfect. But you can think as a short story writer that you're going to make a short story perfect. And uh, I was thinking about that <laughs> and how the the idea of the, self, the short story being self-contained to the point where it could be, you know, actually possible to achieve yeah. literary perfection and you know as a as a writer does not just seem like you know one of those lofty but beautiful goals yeah of <laughs> course it's still it's still a, a chimera something that you probably will never attain but you know it's closer to being like a poem or a song maybe or a you know or a painting it's something that can be kind of contained in the writers and also the reader's attention uh it can be completely encompassed whereas a novel is like uh, taking a voyage, you're lost inside of it for a while, and you know you don't remember every other element in it as you as you go through it. You can't you can't hold it all completely present in mind, either as the writer or the reader. So it's much more in that way like some sort of life experience, um, which I think is its great strength as an art form. But it also dictates this you know thing that I'm suggesting that it's sort of imperfect by design or or. Uh, anyway, if someone wrote a perfect novel, <laughs> how would anyone know? You'd, you yeah. could never judge it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I like this resemblance, that this inclusiveness. The novel can kind of glom on to, you know, it can be digressive. It can grab onto other things. It can stop and, uh, you know, uh, philosophize for a little while or describe a place or a, another piece of art. Or, you know, it's sort of, it's the, it's the most um, encompassing art form. And... So in that way, I think it's the most lifelike. Mm-hmm. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, another another characteristic of your work that I'm pretty fond of is um, the art of writing as a tool with which you write about other forms of art. And I was hoping that you would read another passage uh, from later in the book that's uh, sure. about the more musical component of your characters' lives. Uh, here you go. The first chords, chunks of noise, rebound in the gulch of buildings. They seem, to those on the sidewalk, an atonal clatter, one unrelated to the tick and throb of drum and bass which had reached them independently, conveyed an instant before through the curb to their calves and knees, perhaps even as high as their genitals. Soon, though, the listener's ears wrangled the dissonant sounds into sensible conjunction, 
a kind of on-the-spot reconstruction of this music's sense in the first place. Any listener schooled in the form could peel it off echoing architecture as easily as resolve it through a radio statics <laughs> through a radio's static in a car passing through the airspaces of two FM stations rivaling for the same frequency. Those staticky growls were, sure, amplified guitars, echoing in the cage of the drum beat. Vocals, too, though distorted by the street's reverb effect. A general drift was discernible, twice through a verse, building to a chorus. Hey, everyone knows how this works. Knows it in their bones, even if unable to articulate it exactly. Rock and roll. It's what makes this band sound alike to any other that makes them intriguing at this distance. They could be the Beatles, heard from the street. Or, just as easily, the Beards. The crowd buzzes with the general sense that an obscure evening has located its raison d'etre. At least, you'd have to go upstairs to know. Whoever they were, they were playing live, and you, on the sidewalk, with skewered Thai chicken in your hand, are missing the set. Anyway, you were curious to see what this famous party loft was about, after all, despite the spontaneous curbside revels' rude charms. The band concluded their opener's last chorus just as Mr. Ooh levered open the freight elevator doors and the first clutch of guests spilled onto the floor. Someone, Jules Harvey, the appropriated interns, had located a master control panel for the loft's lighting and fiddled until the stage was encircled with a blobby series of wide purplish spots from a track of lamps mounted behind the band, angled to glare in the eyes of anyone standing near enough to discern the band's faces and casting the floor between stage and elevator into dark. Without footlamps to provide underlighting, the band appears mysteriously remote, silhouettes draped in indigo as they confer with one another and their set list, nodding, perhaps mumbling a word or two, but inaudible above the low crackle and drone of speakers broadcasting nothing but their own electronic readiness at top volume. A female voice, the drummer, counts one, two, three, four, and the second song is launched, with a single rim shot like a firecracker, igniting the guitarist. He's a feeble figure, hunched atop a tall stool, and apparently unable to play without watching his fingers, but who now lays out an unexpectedly slab-like power chord, stretching a sneakered toe from where it had been curled inside a spoke of his stool to trigger a distortion pedal on the stage floor. Thank you. That was author Jonathan Lethem uh, reading a passage from his latest work titled You Don't Love Me Yet. I thought that was a you know, a particularly descriptive passage in the context of the rest of the novel. And, you you know, you sounded very much like a music writer. And I, when I was reading about <laughs> you, when I was reading about you, um, I found out that you edited DeCapo's Best Music Writing Anthology. Yeah, I, I did edit that book. But it's funny, my credentials as a music writer are kind of fake ones. <laughs> I, um, I basically created this uh, sleight of hand where in The Fortress of Solitude, my highly autobiographical main character, Dylan Ebdis, has a career as a music writer. He writes for Rolling Stone, and he writes a lot of liner notes for records. And people, as a result, kind of ascribed this career to me. And it was very funny. They would even remember, falsely, they would remember reading pieces that didn't exist. They'd say, oh, yeah, I used to read your stuff in Rolling Stone all the time. And I hadn't really written anything like that. So it's been kind of fun. It's as though I got to kind of... Um, brandish this imaginary credential because then I edited the the uh, book of of 
of rock criticism. And uh, in a, a couple of weeks, I'm going to Seattle and I'm going to give a keynote address at the uh, EMP, Experience Music Project Conference, which is like the summit of rock critics. Mm-hmm. And I've still only written a very small handful of real music pieces. What I've done is write about music fictionally quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And the language that I use comes from, I mean, this is the other way in which I have earned this this privilege is I'm an enormous fan of music writing. I read it compulsively. Mm-hmm. And so I've absorbed so much of the vocabulary of rock criticism, I guess, that I can kind of uh, recapitulate it when I need to write these sort of reviews of my non-existent bands. Uh, I, I know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you've edited De Capo's best writing best music writing, excuse me, anthology. You've got this, you know, quote unquote rock novel you just came out with. I read um, an interesting piece you did about, it was an interview with Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. which sounded thrilling, frankly. It was thrilling mm-hmm. to do it. I bet it was. Um, I noticed on your website, you've got this really interesting, um, it's really interesting section. I, was it called Promiscuous Materials? Yeah. And the, are you thinking of the Promiscuous Songs? Uh-huh. I've got this uh, ongoing project which satisfies my vicarious wish to be a, a, a rock star where I'm offering these lyrics to various musicians and letting them uh, turn them into songs and uh, it's not exclusive so anyone can dip into this website and take one of the lyrics and and make a, a song or a, you know a demo out of it and and if uh, someone does this and then sends me a uh, an mp3 I'll post it on the site so there's a sort of pile of um, different different adaptations of my lyrics that have that are accumulating on this on the website that you can listen to. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Maybe I'll give that a try. Um, <laughs> but you've also got um, you've got a lot about visual art in the novel. Um, your father was a painter, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sense really strongly in your work. You've got a lot of writing about different kinds of art, and I'm curious as to what you think about uh, the boundaries between different artistic mediums. In what ways um, other artistic mediums influence your work? Well. They do very, very actively. I mean, I, you know, I grew up kind of wanting to be a filmmaker and a and a cartoonist and a painter and a, and a musician. And some of these things I had maybe some talent for and others not at all. But I've always felt that my writing was very directly nourished by other forms and that I, you know, when I'm working and I'm inspired, I'm thinking as much about, uh, you know, films I love or the feeling that a certain song gives me or a painting as I am about sources or references in other literature. Um, and I don't know, uh, I mean, I think this is particularly strong in me. The, the The fact is a lot of other writers are relatively isolated from the other arts. It tends, to, you know, just as the book section in the you know Sunday paper is sort of not part of the art section, I think writers... Uh, to, for, for my money, are too divided from the natural alliances they should feel with other art forms. Um, there's something kind of cloistered and, and maybe slightly academic in a way about the the culture of literary activity uh, that I think would be refreshed by uh, more kind of communion with the other art forms, mm-hmm. uh, something that anyway gives me a lot of uh, – a, a lot of inspiration and, and energy. Mm-hmm. So the most effective art you think is a a combination of mediums or mediums that influence each other rather than just one beautiful self-contained 
object? Well, I guess I don't know. I mean, a, a novel is a very self-contained object, and mm-hmm. I, in some ways, you know, by speaking of my yearning for collaboration or for a connection, I'm, you know, I'm pining from within the the natural solitude, the kind of ivory tower that every novelist inevitably inhabits where you you know you work alone and you're producing something that only you can understand or or you know uh enact no one no one can really help you with a novel that much mm-hmm. but um but i do think that uh art is ultimately an attempt to connect one of the things that interests me so much and you can see me writing about this in the lives of the artists in a book like fortress of solitude which has a lot of artists in it uh you know, a painter and a, a musician and a, 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 a critic and, and um, a graffiti artist, is that there's, these, there's this tension in the activity where it's very self-absorbed, very solipsistic and lonely, but at the same time it's very much uh, an attempt to build community, to make connections, to uh, communicate to other people. And so every artist stands in some complicated relationship to these two poles mm-hmm. yeah well as you mentioned the novel is a very self-contained um work of art i guess in a sense but also um i feel all writers are necessarily influenced by reading other writers sure yeah Who would you say are your biggest influences um, oh gosh i mean uh the kind of foundational ones the first writers that really lit me up and made me think that i wanted to be a writer were you know lewis carroll and and Ray Bradbury, and um, shortly after that, uh, I sort of bumped into a whole flock of writers that are still really, uh, really important influences on me. Uh, Shirley Jackson and Philip K. Dick, Raymond Chandler. I mean, you can see in my earliest stories and novels that I'm recapitulating these influences very directly. Mm -hmm. Just after that, Graham Greene, you know, a little bit later, Italo Calvino, Don DeLillo, Iris Murdoch. Iris Murdoch was a very direct influence on "You Don't Love Me Yet," mm-hmm. um, and uh, but there's so many. I have I have you know so many different favorites, and and they influence me at, at different times. You know, in varying degrees, uh, I may have one or another of them more in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you feel about? Um, I mean, you've reached a point in your career where there. Are, Indubitably, other writers who are citing you as their influence. How do you oh, that's feel about the best. That? <laughs> couldn't, couldn't be happier. That's 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 you know, that's proof that I've um, made an impression. Uh, I think having having an influence is really thrilling. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take one more short break. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back.
You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai, and I'm here with author Jonathan Lethem. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, about your influences. I picked the music I did today because I read an interview um, in, <laughs> in which you said that uh, a friend once made you very happy by saying that if your collective writings were a band, they'd be Yola Tengo. <laughs> and yeah, you were thrilled about that. I, I, and I heard... I heard the sound come into my headset, and I was happy again. <laughs> um, do you do you regularly listen to music while you write? Yeah, I always do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I kind of need something going when I write. I have this horror of uh, the ringing in my ears. I don't like silence. Mm-hmm. So, um, and sometimes what I listen to is very connected to what I'm working on, um, and sometimes it's just something that I'm listening to. But um, you know, for for this current book about kind of a, you know, sort of shambling indie style rock band. I was definitely listening to a lot of the kinds of bands, well, like Yola Tango uh, and the Chills and and uh, uh, the DBs and the Feelies that I associate with this sort of part of my life. And, you know, I, I still listen to them all, but they, they all came on really strong for me when I was in my 20s. And, um, you know, all bands that in a way, it's the nature of, you know, loving a kind of indie pop band like that, that you sort of feel defiant on their behalf. Like they ought to be, they should have, you know, ruled the pop charts at some point. Mm-hmm. They're never as famous in the world as they are in your mind, even if they do achieve some kind of fame. So, uh, you know, and of course the band in my book doesn't get anywhere near the accomplishments of those bands I mentioned or or really very near any particular <laughs> accomplishment at all. But in their mind, they would, you know, their their dream would be to maybe coalesce into something as as wonderful as Yola Tango. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the um, the idea of silence because not only is that you know particularly musical motif that I'm sure often runs through the head of most writers when they're fighting their writer's block, but um, in the novel, there's also. The idea of silence also surfaces, I think, in the interpersonal relationships between the characters, and in particular in that in that one relationship between uh, Lucinda and uh-huh. the complainer, right. um, who are constantly talking to each other on the telephone when they first meet. I was hoping that you would read us sure. uh, one more passage from the book yeah. before we finish. Here goes. There's a certain kind of talk I have with women, the voice complained. I say whatever I'm thinking about love and sex and blah, blah, blah. I've heard myself a thousand times. But as normal as it is for me, this kind of frank talk, I mean, for women it seems like it's always the first time in their lives they've ever spoken that way. There's nothing so strange in that, Lucinda suggested. You're accustomed to yourself, but you surprise others. Surprise would be one thing, said the complainer. But I change others. I affect people. Women. Something happens to them, but nothing happens to me. The sameness of my life is confirmed by the effect I have on women. They're always changed. Maybe if I met somebody who wasn't surprised by me, something new would happen. You mean falling in love? Perhaps the caller was only some dreary seducer, Lucinda thought now, impressed with his own unresponsiveness. Oh, he said, I've fallen in love. Lucinda adjusted the telephone on her shoulder and craned sideways to peer beyond the edge of cubicle. Falmouth wasn't at the storefront gallery's reception desk. She caught scent of his coffee pot, dregs charring to a shrill odor. Vehicles coursed outside. 
At four in the afternoon, the sun on Sunset Boulevard was as pale and flinty as morning light. Cubicles at either side of Lucinda sat empty. The office was little more than library carols that Falmouth's carpenters had slapped together, then painted gray. The yellow legal pad before Lucinda lay bare. She raised her pen and mimed script in the air. Tell me, she said. Look, he said, I fall in love every five minutes. I might be half in love with you now. You're not the first caller to this line to say that, she said. Love is everywhere, then? I'm supposed to be writing down your complaints, she reminded him. Okay, right, he said. Well, today's complaint can be about what happens when I fall in love, though I try not to anymore. It makes me bad at being where I am. I don't understand. If I really fell in love with you, he said, then when we hung up the phone, I'd be stuck halfway. I'd be all disjointed in time and space, half there and half here, and I don't even know where there is. Whereas now, we get off the phone, no trouble. I'm where I am, like the Buddhists prefer. Ah, she said, we all want to keep the little Buddhists happy. The Buddhists inside ourselves, those are the ones I worry about. But you still haven't really told me what happens when you fall in love, she said, only that you want to avoid it. My eyes destroy you, he said. What? I have this condition called monster eyes. I find something not to like, and it becomes enormous. It becomes the whole world. Once it was a woman's fingernails. I started to think they were too weird and short and stubby, and then it was all I could think about. I tried encouraging her to work on her cuticles, to push them up. Am I disgusting you? No. I told myself that if she'd just work on her hands, I'd go back to adoring her. But really, there were other things about her voice and personality and the way she made love that were waiting to take the place of the fingernails. I'd begun to erode and degrade her in my mind, with my monster eyes. Cradling the pen at the point like chalk, Lucinda wrote in block letters, Monster Eyes. Thank you. That was Jonathan Lethem reading from his book, You Don't Love Me Yet. Boy, I really, I like that passage. I really liked um, the way that you, you know, formulated the relationship between Lucinda and uh, as he become as he comes to be known, um, I guess, fondly in the in the mind of Lucinda, the complainer. Yeah. He, he has a real name, but um, that, that's really his name, frankly. Um, so they they meet through a strange sort of telephone interaction, and um. We talked earlier about how um, the majority of the characters in the novel are sort of stumbling around. They're not sure what they're searching for, Lucinda in particular. And I was wondering what you had envisioned her searching for necessarily. Was it was it love? Was it love she was searching for with the complainer? Or Well, I'm not sure in the ordinary sense. I think she's looking to become visible in a way. She wants to be... Uh, to achieve a kind of realization in the world where people... Uh, look at her and see something. And she's hoping that once that happens, she'll see herself. You know, it's it's a kind of wanting to be to be made real because I think she feels so tenuous and so um, invisible. And the complainer seems, at first at least, to offer this possibility of, um, of bringing her into being in some way. But of course, that's a version of, well, it's a version of both what an artist is trying to make happen and what a lover is always seeking. You know, it's that attempt to become uh, enshrined in someone else's gaze. 
uh, or in someone else's understanding that um, drives and and makes similar both the the yearning to become a, a, an artist, a published writer, or a, you know a famous musician or whatever it might be, and to be adored, to be loved by someone else. Mm-hmm. I also um, was particularly interested in um, not just the idea of love, but the idea of how the secrets the secrets of all the different characters yeah. um, tend to sort of infiltrate and corrupt their interpersonal relationships. And I was wondering, um, I don't know, I was wondering what you had to say about the idea of secrets and how they how they affected the relationships. Well, yeah, it's connected, I think in the book, it's connected to the idea of depth. Uh, you know, and there's a, there's a running joke about surface and depth in this mm-hmm. book. Uh, you know, whether depth matters at all or what it is. And, you know, since these are kind of, you know, uh, these characters behave superficially in so many ways. They're concerned with the idea of becoming famous without necessarily having earned it. They think a lot about their haircuts, mm-hmm. and um, yet, of course, in 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 a pop art, in 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 you know, in rock and roll, surface is pretty important. In fact, it may be the whole the whole ball game in a way. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're kind of confused about this question of whether they need to be deep and to have a secret is you know to be sure that you're deep. And so. One of the things that uh, these characters are, you know, are hoping to do is strike other people as mysterious and and profound and deep. And so, in order to to believe in that, you have to have something that isn't all uh, available at a glance, some kind of secret. Mm-hmm. I think that's a I think that's a pretty poignant observation that that the book makes. But uh, that's all the time we have for the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. I really I really enjoyed Thanks. reading your book. And be sure to pick up a copy of Jonathan Lethem's You Don't Love Me Yet. Uh, it's been great having you on the show. And thanks to our engineer, Alex Belhaj. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in today. My name is Rachel Harkai. You've been listening to The Living Writer Show. Our archives are available as podcasts on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store online and search for Living Writers. Stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.